Hello, Rantbox TV. Once again, it is Friday. I'm your host, John Clay. I'm going to be talking with Numi Spook. Hello, Numi. Hello. Good stuff. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, excellent. Cool, good stuff. Um, we're going to be talking about misogyny in the UK, as it indicates in the title. Um, I want to open this to Numi. When I say misogyny in the UK, what recent discussions have you had about it and how have they gone? Yeah, that's a good question. So misogyny in the UK, I mean, obviously the, the main uh, media attention on misogyny recently has been in relation to the um, murder of Sarah Everard, the police response to the women at her vigil and the um, use of excessive force when dealing with women who were... Um, expressing their <laughs> feelings of you know uh, mutual and collective feelings of grief and fear in a way that is natural and very needed I think um so that level of police response was absolutely ridiculous oh, we're being joined by my cat over there she's like come to participate in the discussion <laughs> um and so so yeah so then that spark then then obviously that's morphed into um uh people standing up for their rights in the police crime bill and um essentially a lot of the the kind of discourse around police brutality has kind of got enmeshed with the discussion around the police crime bill as well because there've been a string of protests up and down the country um and a similar level of police violence that's been kind of specific that the, there've been photos specifically of women who have been involved in these um in these protests that have experienced violence um at the hands of um an over aggressive police force so the conversations around that online um have been a lot of men kind of hashtagging like not all men are responsible for murdering women um you know it's kind of the knee-jerk response of a, a lot of men who, after women were coming forward telling men on twitter you know how they could try and make women feel a bit more safe while they're walking around at night and that kind of response of like oh it's not me you know is like the least helpful thing to say in in a conversation when people are making themselves vulnerable and expressing that they're you know that they would it's a request for help really isn't it it's like this I don't feel safe this is what you could do um as the person holding the power in this situation is this is these are the things that you could do to kind of make me feel a little bit safer and to go it's a dismissive passive aggressive response really because it's um it's undermining the experience that the majority of women have, have had which is that they have been either you know um assaulted they've been catcalled they've been they've experienced some form of harassment or assault at the hands of a man so for men to then just go well that's not me is um really the last thing that we need in this situation what we're asking for is a little bit of um like we're all fallible human beings we've all made 
mistakes and transgressions um, in, in a variety of areas in our lives. And, you know, to an extent, that's okay. You know, like it's okay to have been, um, to have said something inappropriate or whatever, because as long as there's a moment of reflection and you go like, ah, okay, yeah, perhaps that's not who I would like to be going forward. And so, you know, maybe I will make some adjustments or apologize for my behavior, you know, and, and then move forward. Like let's, you know, we're in this together. So anyway, I just think that, yeah, there's been a lot of like, um, unhelpful and, um, dismissive, uh, uh, kind of stances from men online that have, that are doing the classic misogynist thing of positioning their perspective as neutral when it's anything but it's it's kind of from the stance of inherent privilege that's so privileged that they're not able to understand or recognize a worldview that isn't their own and therefore dismiss it as not being something that exists they're also not able to see or willing to admit that there is a, a potential for um behavior that is viewed by women or you know other other kind of uh oppressed groups i would say as as being like potentially violent or aggressive behavior even if it's coming from a benignly like the, the intent is benign that's not how it's received and so there's a yeah there's a there's a real issue there um which you know this kind of like attack as form of defense and attack from a position that's a sued, um, it's kind of a false neutral. Oh, well, yeah. you're being irrational because, you know, and that you're being irrational, you're being hysterical or you're kind of bringing something to this that doesn't exist, you're blowing it out of proportion are all kind of statements or, or positions that undermine the discourse rather than help to contribute or solve the problem and that's why it's so dangerous I think and that's why it needs to be called out because it isn't a neutral stance the white male perspective is not a neutral stance it's a very privileged one and I, th I don't think there can be a lot of progress until there's recognition of that yeah there is always going to be a a group of people on social media or in real life that when they hear you say the white male's perspective is not a neutral stance all they hear is you're being horrible to me they don't understand yeah. that you're talking about a structural problem and yeah. how that inherently impacts on people's uh, behavior and perspectives do you see anything that people can do to contribute to this idea of bleeding out of society um do I think there's anything that people can do to stop this from bleeding out into society? Well, I think awareness is the first thing. Um, just applying awareness to your own perspective. So I think this is maybe a good time for me to mention that, you know, I'm very aware that I'm a white, cisgendered, able-bodied woman. So I have an enormous amount of privilege and um, I also have a lot to learn and be open and be curious and kind of be humble to to learn lessons and have and be called out on things when I get things wrong um, and it takes a certain amount of humility to be able to uh, 
to be able to get to that place, I think. And I, all I'm asking, I suppose, for, pe- for people, um, regardless of where they sit on the um, gender or race spectrum to kind of approach, approach the subject of intersectional feminism, I guess, with the same lens of like, I don't know everything. And so let's be open to learning about what other people's perspectives are. Um, because it varies as well. Like there'll be other women that have very different views on this to myself, perhaps um, very different experiences to myself and their, um, their expression is, is equally as valid, I guess. So I think, yeah, it's just about making, making yourself aware that your view is not the only one that exists and um, whenever you catch yourself making an assumption about the world try and figure out what what where that's coming from where that um, perspective is coming from Um, you know and I think it helps to like read read a lot from um personal experiences and testimonies from people who've been through things that you can't possibly experience yourself. Um, So for instance, there's an Instagram account that I follow called Decolonize Yourself, which is all about the uh, experiences of um, First Nations peoples in the US. Um, It's basically, you know, giving me a perspective that I was totally ignorant of prior to that. And I found it very helpful, actually, and very eye-opening experience in terms of the power of the language that we use to um, describe certain things. And um, yeah, I think I think that's it's particularly important to listen to perspectives of people um, and of women um, who have have been silenced or their voices have not been given much of a platform historically up until this point I mean women have been 50% of the population for the entire duration of humanity and yet we are where are we in the history books where are we you know the there's just like no mention of of or very little mention I mean things are starting to change now But in terms of what we were taught in schools, in terms of the contribution of women to society, that perspective has always been missing. And, you know, that's what started the myth of the invisible, neutral, white male perspective was that we're being taught the perspective of the oppressor as if this is the normal, this is the, you know, and it's only when we start to unlearn some of these things and realize, yeah, but that's only because they took the power, you know, they took power. <laughs> um, white men literally stole that from, from women, from uh, people of color. It, it, they don't, you know, it's colonization and patriarchy and capitalism are essentially one in the same thing. Yeah. And it's all fear-based, isn't it? If people, well, 
if men back in the day didn't fear their own emotions or have this jaundiced idea of equating femininity with weakness or trying to control that perspective. So that was how um, things like eternalized misogyny would begin. If those things didn't happen, then we obviously wouldn't have what we have now. And I'd like to ask you a question based on all that. I mean, in this really strange time where a lot of our relationships will be through the internet, will be parasocial, and there's obviously a big, gigantic, um, uh, say potential for radicalization of those who listen to um, accounts held by Ben Shapiro and Jordan, Jordan Peterson. How, how do we de-radicalize the elements of those um, relationships that we'll have to have in the real world again? Mm. Um, de-radicalization of people. I mean, that's a very complicated. Yes. I don't, I don't, think, there's, I don't think there's one solution to that. Mm. um I think it depends on you know I mean in a weird way it's sort of a form of mental illness I think when people get too far down because and what I mean by that is that it's a um a complete identification with a particular ideology yeah um to the extent where you will defend the ideology to the point where you think that you're defending your own life because it's almost become inextricably linked from your own identity. So you have, um, you know, and, and I think also a lot of the times when people feel connected to a certain ideology, particularly ones on the sort of right of the spectrum, that it's coming from a place of fear, that it's coming from feeling otherized um, and feeling like you shouldn't be otherized because you should be the neutral perspective. So if you feel a, like an, a, a pull to uh, identify with a neutral, and then all of a sudden it's like you're not, you're being, you know, people are sharing their experiences, which is asking for equality. And that equality now starts to feel like oppression because you know, you didn't realize that you were standing on a platform towering above everybody else and people asking to be raised up to the same level makes you feel like you're being dragged down to their level. Then you're going to go over and join a group that's saying like, that's not fair. That's not right. You should come on board with us. Yeah. And that, getting involved in that group is going to kind of galvanize and embolden these ideas. And, and also we know that the, you know, the algorithms are sending people in this direction anyway, that is kind yes. of building people up into a, so that, so the whole radicalization and things online, you know, other than finding things, I mean, there's some great resources out there that sort of explain a, another perspective or, or a kind of um, unpick, some of the um some of the ideology so that you know it's really great actually there's a new um uh philosophy tube video and abigail thorne is doing an amazing job of kind of unpicking the whole jordan peterson ideology um it's a cracking video i highly recommend people check that out but also maybe if you come across anyone online you could gently point them in the direction of someone like Abigail Thorne or ContraPoints yeah. and just say, here we go, like, have a look at this. This is another perspective. This is, um, it's not bashing them. It's not calling them any names. It's just kind of 
explaining from a philosophical point of view where their argument is coming from. Sure. Um, and so that kind of stuff is very is very helpful, I think. At, at But then there are some people who are too far gone or they're not, you know, there's a there's a level of participation that's required in the de-radicalization process. Yeah. And if that person is not ready to go on that journey, then you're going to be wasting your you're going to be wasting your breath. And so I think actually the most important thing that we could do to participate actively in de-radicalization is to work on ourselves and make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable for our yeah. own um, uh, prejudice and ensuring that we're doing the most that we can to continue to be learning and 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 also um, try and meet people on a level that they can understand when we do have these conversations. So it's very hard <laughs> to remain emotionally detached in conversations about issues that directly affect you. Um, and sometimes it's not, it's not, you have to have a boundary and you have to protect yourself as your first priority. So, you know, um, that's fine if you're not able to have a conversation with someone in order to kind of de-escalate or kind of attempt to kind of bring them around from a kind of potentially uh, harmful perspective that they've got, fine, step there away. There needs to be more awareness that you're having to go through that internally, you know? These guys yeah. that are gonna mansplain this shit to you, you <laughs> understand that you are going through that because you can't detach yourself from these experiences. They've partly informed who you are and how you relate yeah. to men in various different contexts whether it be um uh, you know in a place of vulnerability when you're like say walking home as you know we've seen can you know lead to and has and unfortunately will lead to many circumstances like we've had recently with uh, miss everard so there needs to be more awareness of that you know yeah yeah definitely um and I mean, well, hopefully stuff like uh, stuff like this conversation, you know, I mean, if people are watching this and feeling like unsure about their behavior, um, whether or not they're, you know, they're kind of hopefully not in a space where they feel attacked, but maybe just thinking, oh, I wonder if um, this thing that I've said online or whatever was maybe uh, the perspective of that was maybe read in a different way than I meant it uh, or maybe I jumped into a conversation too quickly rather than kind of taking a step back and sort of listening to what was being said first um, there's a tendency I think um, in terms of the culture of male behavior so I, I want to be careful I, I'm not saying anything about the biology here like I don't think there is a specific difference between men and women biologically but I think socially well other than well <laughs> you know like I, I, in terms of a significant one that if, I don't think there's any such thing as a men, male or female brain for instance like I don't think that's uh, a thing but I feel like the way that um, men are uh, socialized shall we say is uh, in a different way to women. Um, and I think that that's obvious uh, when you look at the, you know, generally speaking. So, so, so I work in film and TV 
and the majority of women that I work with or the majority of women that I know in my life the the prevailing issue that they have with their work is a lack of confidence um that's not a coincidence that's a uh, a direct result of living within a society and a system and an industry <laughs> that prioritizes um the male perspective and and champions people who have a um emboldened belief that they can achieve or do whatever they want and i think this is some this is a kind of learned behavior that starts from babies onwards um the the way that we treat male babies and female babies is uh is very different um and i think that that then contributes to the way that um men and women behave as adults and i think that the you know this whole this whole there are two kinds of misogyny there's like the 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 overt misogyny of like men incels basically who or, or you know or people like the like murdering women or or deliberately hating women that's that and then you've got the um the less overt the the kind of in it's kind of more pervasive in a way misogyny that's that's it's rampant but it's coming from a benign place which is that um society as a whole has taught us to believe that women are um inferior and by inferior i mean like weaker softer gentler kinder more compassionate and and it's as a result of that belief that we have been socialized and conditioned to believe that we are also that so that when we want to stand up for ourselves when we want to assert our boundaries or assert our authority we're bossy or we're a ball buster or we have these very gendered terms that would not be applied to a man in the same situation yeah. and also the the so anything that goes against the grain of those inherent and not really spoken about social norms about gender are then seen as um you know but again also i i i feel that i just want to flag at this point that i know that i'm talking about gender in very binary terms here and that i do not believe that it is i think that gender appears on a spectrum and i do not um want to cast myself as an expert in any way about um the the whole spectrum of gender and how it's experienced by um by trans women for for instance or non-binary uh people because i think that their experiences within this space are also incredibly valuable and so i can only i can only speak to my experience as a as a cisgendered woman um but i am not attempting to erase as part of this discussion i i would i think that it's incredibly important to um for for me to learn more about those perspectives uh, so that i can add them into into the conversations that i have about gender but well, um, yeah i mean your caveat is um quite telling because essentially i agree with you like we we can't afford to have that erasure but a lot of the time we are talking about a media 
um, and the commodities within that media that don't recognize that spectrum. And so the people that imbibe that uh, simulacra or hyper-reality of that um, binary perspective, they'll be living out um, lives that are um, conducive to that being the only reality. I mean, we spoke off camera about that. Essentially, we've got people who aren't necessarily being people, you know, not to go full Philip K. Dick on this, but essentially you've got replicants walking around that consider their reality to be the only one. Um, and to, to that point, um, I want to come back on an earlier question, but from another perspective, when you rejoin like people in the real world again, outside of like the wonderful world, which is Facebook and Instagram, when you're talking to your friends who have gone quite very far to the left due to a certain kind of radicalization, how do you intend to talk to them about, say, issues of misogyny in the UK? Or do you believe there isn't anything to be said? No, I definitely think there's always conversations to be had. Um, we're not there yet. <laughs> We've not reached um, this kind of utopian goal. <laughs> of, um, yeah. Um, so no, there's definitely still conversations to be had. And I, and I think that there are definitely conversations to be had on the left as well. Um, that I think that there, that misogyny exists everywhere in every aspect of society. And it exists in ways that you don't expect um, and in places, and that's probably where it's the most, uh, or it, it's equally damaging, I would say, as um, uh, because it's a consistent and, and constant undermining of, um, of anything other than the white male perspective. So it's, um, it has to be challenged and we have to watch out for things like, um, who are the figureheads of the movements that we're putting forward? Is there, a, is there constantly a, um, is there a constantly decision to have a white man leading the charge for socialists? movements or for um environmental movements or any kind of movements on the on the left that are doing good work but it's like to what extent is this an intersectional approach um there is a lot to be learned from now uh, just to go back a little bit when i'm talking about the socialization of of women and um this idea this notion that we are more empathetic or kind in in a lot of cases that that could be true um, because we have been socialized that way, even if it's not a, a, a kind of inherent biological disposition for women to behave a certain way. I think that's dangerous to assume that. And I think that's a root cause of a lot of mis misogynist thinking is that women are inherently biologically different in ways that mean that they aren't able to, you know, uh, do military service or I mean that's probably a very bad example I'm not sure to what extent I would ever advocate for, for, for that um, but but um, you know oh, I can't think uh, just any any job that's traditionally seen as a masculine role in society maybe a leader or, or something like that so anyway um, but the but there is a lot to be learned from having a more holistic and horizontalist approach to uh, to working, which is something that I've seen in a lot of female only spaces where there is 
um, an approach that takes into account people's feelings and we're able to have discussions about those things um, in a way that informs uh, how the decision-making process is, is kind of tackled. Um, so there are things that I think are really wonderful and that, that society would benefit greatly from learning from the way that the, the female perspective, whether that's a learned perspective or not, is, is kind of irrelevant. I feel like there is, there is a, um, something to be said for that. And I think that also in, in a perfect world, in a, in a genuinely neutral world, the way that we approach um, decision making, for instance, I know that's a very broad term, but um, the way that we approach decision making in any capacity would ideally take a little bit from the structures that that exist now, which is exclusively from the male patriarchal perspective, and then take some of the learnings that that have come from uh, from the way that is more traditionally a feminine approach to things and combine them and then what you end up with is is a neutral ground i mean in an in an ideal world that would be the best way of doing it that we're no longer talking about things in gendered terms <laughs> that things are are genuinely an authentically neutral space and that masculine and feminine are terms that could potentially go in the bin that we no longer need this binary sort of distinction and that um yeah that we're able to get to a space of uh of of authentic neutrality that is coming from a place of wanting to be um supporting growth and uh, yeah. uh i mean personal growth not like growth in the sort of like gdp <laughs> way <laughs> no no i totally understand that um i think you you actually were on the right track like you seem to be like editing yourself regarding um women in the military because we both belong to a film group um empire yeah, which they've got an actual subgroup, which is mm -hmm. um, looking at films through a feminist lens. And the subject of G.I. Jane came up and you could, um, I don't know if you remember, but you can see the way that Hollywood treated that film and the way that Demi Moore um, bulked up for that film and how mm -hmm. the reaction to that betrayed so much misogyny, not just in the, the film world, but how we expect these people to be, you know, um, in terms of, there we seem to only think of characters that are played by Demi Moore as being powerful as much as they look a certain way right and she's just one example but G.I. Jane I think fundamentally you know is um, a great uh, say example of what you're talking about. Well it's a very complicated issue because um, so obviously we've got there are issues around um, how women are treated in the workplace and women are treated differently from men. And I think at the core, that's what that film is about because yeah. her character is demonstrating that she is capable of doing anything that a man could do physically. And, um, you know, there, there is a lot to be said in, for, for a film that's like championing that perspective. And it's also got a lot of... Um, other issues of misogyny where they're they're making her out to be um uh a, a lesbian and that that would then kind of eradicate her from her capacity to be in the military because you know homophobia <laughs> um mm, yeah. and so 
you know, and, and so there's a, there's a whole other issue there about um, um, queer people being denied access to heterosexual spaces and heterosexual and, and all that stuff. And then also sexual abuse within the military. And there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Um, yeah, we have to discuss that entire film at some point. <laughs> we probably do, but, but just to kind of zoom out a little bit, there is a wider conversation to be had about the feminist perspective on the military as a whole and whether or not it could ever be deemed a feminist um, pursuit to go into a career that is um, fundamentally about violence and whether or not there is a uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I don't really feel equipped to kind of go into this at any, at any length, but I'm aware that there are a lot of really great and articulate feminist thinkers that have done and written some really wonderfully um, profound pieces about why it's not possible to be a feminist and to hold a view that it, the military industrial complex is something that I would like to serve as a, as a human being, that there are, um, there are definitely arguments out there about why those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, Do so you I let me know once um, this video is done, you, this just pretend we it out. Are. Yeah, it's in the description box now, guys. In the <laughs> description box now. <laughs> Yeah, definitely worth some further reading on that, and um, um, because it's a because it's a very complicated thing, and um, it may even be Angela Davis. I'll I'll have a look and I'll see what um, where I can find that. And yeah, yeah, it'll be good to kind of think about that because um, there are some. Ultimately, there's a lot of there's a lot to be said that the that the paid you know, the feminist movement is inextricably linked to the anti-capitalist movement and to the prison abolition movement and to the, um, you know, essentially it's all the same fight. <laughs> like whatever whatever we're fighting, it basically, I think it always comes back yeah. to the same thing that, you know, the systems that oppress us are all fundamentally driven by the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we sort of need to tackle that unilaterally. So I'm not sure how, it, it is obviously helpful to divide the discussion up so that we're able to have a nuanced conversation about the, um, the different varying experiences. But I think um, where that leads itself open to, um, potential for undermining itself is when the uh, discussions become too siloed to the point where it allows people to become totally identified with that silo that's that uh, this affects me I'm just interested in white feminism for instance because I only want to support a cause that directly affects me and or that's where I think that's where um, kind of turfism comes from as well in terms of like we're excluding trans women and non-binary people from the discussion about gender because I need to service my needs uh, this is about me getting and you know obviously that people are going to be um, not viewing it like that because they they can't they, they're, they're totally identified with their own ideology to the point where 
everything else is a threat. So you've, you can see it online, the vitriol um, from people within these kind of siloed feminist groups. Um, and, uh, and sadly, it is a lot of white women as well who, who are kind of, you know, um, leading the charge in terms of these like really and it's it's getting to sort of right wing kind of territory a lot of it as well which is like yeah you know. do you find just becoming less surprised by the perpetrators of such um less surprised yeah like, I, mean, I mean do we find like or shock and horror when we see like a pattern because i don't know i'm starting to believe that there's a lot of merit in not being as surprised do you know what I mean? Which sounds quite uh, simple, but I mean, yeah, I think I think it's not surprising when you think that all of this stuff is coming from the same place. Like, if you're if you're an incel and you're totally involved in that community and you've totally identified yourself with that ideology to the point where you would be willing to fight tooth and nail to defend that. Um, and you are not willing to look at anybody else's perspective and you will, you know, be um, violent, verbally aggressive, um, you know, really nasty in you, of, towards other people in your defense of that ideology. How is that different to a turf and their behavior towards anyone who is not a white woman? You know, they're coming from a place of I, I've been oppressed and so I want to defend my spaces for white women. How is that different from a man saying, I'm being oppressed and I want to defend my spaces for white men because we're being attacked by the woke brigade or whatever. <laughs> Where is this woke brigade? It's like a fucking awesome party. <laughs> yeah, no, right? It's like, um, so I think, I think the trick is to because we're all capable, I suppose, of becoming totally identified with a particular ideological position of thought. Yeah. And I, we can apply that to literally any uh, subject, really. Um, mm -hmm. but, but it's particularly... Um, it's particularly like dangerous or frightening i suppose when the when your ideological position is one based on fear of having your rights taken away or having your um voice or identity erased um mm. so i think that if we're approaching the subjects of our ideology with curiosity what can i learn from other people's perspectives on gender, on race, on how those things intersect, on um, disability and gender. There's so many um, perspectives that we can learn from. If we're approaching it from, from that, or, or, or you know, um, on gender as a spectrum, what can I learn? What can I learn about this other person's perspective? You know, if, if someone who was a, you know, second wave, uh, or third wave feminist <laughs> okay with all the waves um but you know someone who's a kind of 1970s feminist the kind of germane greers of the world who you know 
did do a lot for women's rights back in the day. This is the thing, like they're, I find her views on trans women abhorrent, like absolutely disgusting. But she did say a lot of relevant things that that in terms of um, the, diminish, the diminishment of women, um, she's done a lot of work in that area. She's just kind of undermined herself by by being closed off and not willing, not being willing to carry the conversation on into the present day. You know, she's identified herself with a particular ideology and she stayed where she was. Mm. If she'd have been a bit more progressive, she could have learned how to enmesh the changing views around gender with an ideology that would be better able to support women and other um, people who experience patriarchal oppression. It would have been a lot easier to kind of bring her views up into the into the modern day but instead it there's there's been a silo created around this notion that trans women don't exist and that their um their experience their viewpoint is not valid so um so yeah we've ended up with this um this rather unpleasant and um and deeply entrenched ideology that is quite radicalized and i would hold a mirror up to that and say how are you different from ben shapiro yeah, you know, yeah. The, the specifics of your argument are different but your behavior is the same you know mm. like how i suppose this is the this is the other thing is that people blindly behave in these ways without realizing that they're that they're doing that and that they're you know it's it's your behavior almost more than your ideology is probably more important. You know, if you, if you, um, you might have quite mild um, political leanings and not really, or not really be very politically aware and just kind of going around. But if your behavior is one that's coming from a place of compassion and curiosity, then you're more likely to be of service to the destruction of the patriarchal oppression than if you are um, someone who is deeply entrenched, but then weaponizing your ideology in a way that means that your behavior is contributing to the deepening of divides between people who should be united. You know, it's the same fight. Ideologically, yeah. they're against the same oppressor. And yet this infighting is um uh well i i want to be careful because i'm making it sound like the the trans people are somewhat culpable in this they're not um, <laughs> there is no uh there is no two-way street here the turfs are kind of you know a hate no, group. no, no it, it's really about um the idea of the megaphone if you look at what Jermaine Greer has done before and all the apologists that are ready to line up and say well she's done all this so therefore what she's saying now let's understand that it's the same thing that you'd have with say Martina Navratilova they both become megaphones that are useful for the way that things are now in terms of not doing enough to understand the various different parts of the trans community because it's like the black community even the the idea of saying that um is like a simplified term for us to get to a certain point but even in doing so we have a you know a kind of indirect erasure of all the different perspectives within that community you know so there's that to be um taken into regard um 
before we end, because I, I want to know your views on this, because you have so much to say, it's beautiful. Um, when I say internalized misogyny in the UK, what do you think of, what perspective do you have to bring to that element of this discussion? Internalized misogyny. I mean, it's a daily, it's a daily uh, struggle, I think, for all women to overcome and unlearn the things that we've been taught about ourselves that are unhelpful. So um, one thing that I think that the next generation of women are getting better at is establishing and setting healthy boundaries. I think that's one thing that um, is something that we're taught a lot to not do as women. Um, so don't speak up, don't cause a fuss, don't make, you know, also being forced to share our um, personal space as children is something, you know, oh, go and give this uncle a kiss or a cuddle or whatever. And it's not something that you would necessarily force a boy to do, perhaps. Um, maybe that's changing, but certainly when I was growing up, there was a lot of like, um, don't walk around with your top off when you're nine and you know because you're um that's not ladylike or whatever um so any of the kind of like rambunctious or um non-gender specific behavior that comes from a child that is then gendered by the caregiver and um placed in a either positive or neutral light so don't behave like that don't do that stop doing that about playing with mud or you know climbing trees or being interested in um science or like you know uh, you know uh, there's other things there's a really really fascinating little video which i'll also pull the link up of like um babies in a creche and there are caregivers who are employees of this, uh, their, their um, uh, you know, nursery school assistants. And they're given these two babies that are in the opposite. Uh, they're presenting them in the clothes that are stereotypical of the gender that they are not um, or that they've been assigned. That's <laughs> probably a better way of saying it. So like the the boy baby is in a frock and the girl baby is in little dungarees or whatever. And they're put in this little, in this little crash and they've got hidden cameras on and they film how the nursery assistants deal with them. So the one in the dungarees is being like put on the horse thing and going like, go ride the thing. And like, they're bringing in the cars yeah, um, uh, and yeah. stuff like that. And then the girl baby that's dressed as a girl but is really a boy is being given the little ironing board and the doll and stuff and then they reveal they show it to the to the nursery assistants after and um and reveal that they're not actually the genders that they the babies weren't the genders that they thought and it's the first time that the nursery assistants can see for themselves the difference in their behavior towards the children simply based on the gender that they believed that they were. As soon as you're aware that that's the level, that's how early it starts. And that's the level of difference from like the majority of society. Then you can start to see why that behavior then might be manifested in how we as women behave in society. So 
in terms of feeling like we need to protect ourselves, that we're fragile, that we're frail, that we mustn't make a, you know, mustn't stand up for ourselves, mustn't like make too much of a peep. Um, we want to like put our head down and, and just kind of, you know, hope that the bully who keeps twanging our bra straps in the middle of like um, chemistry class is going to get bored and move on rather than us calling them out because like that's just how we've been socialized to behave is to put the needs of others and other people's comfort ahead of our own so so that is a massive that is a massive thing that we need to unlearn the second thing i think is the whole thing about physical appear appearance and like how the emphasis that's placed on women's physical appearance being her primary value that's added to the world. Now, again, this is slowly changing, but I mean, I could speak for hours as to the representation, the sexist representation of women in cinema, just as one example, that's not even looking at advertising or um, the absolute cascade of images that we see of women's bodies in our phone screens and in adverts online, in the TV, on billboards, just constantly using sexualized images of women's bodies to sell whatever it is, you know, um, that sends a very clear message to, to women. I mean, even things like the plots of Disney movies that are all about women getting a guy and living happily ever after the kind of Disney princess uh, stereotype is something that is just rammed in there from such an early age. You got that on top of being told, um, you know, without, without saying anything, you're told by your caregivers what your limitations are by the way that they guide you towards certain toys rather than others, you know we've got all that to kind of unlearn and unpick but the damaging thing that it does to our psyche is that we start to believe that unless we are beautiful and unless we are desired by the male gaze then we are valueless and we are not making or that the the, the the very limited power that we have because ultimately if we want any power in this world, then one of the ways, the, the only significant way that we can get it is by being attractive or by utilizing our physical appearance as a way, as leverage towards getting what we, what we want, you know. And um, that's a really difficult thing to, to kind of deal with, especially if, you know, your perception of yourself um, comes off short when you measure yourself up against other women who are um, achieving that goal to a higher standard than you believe that you are, you know, oh, she's got a thigh gap or whatever. Um, I can't compete with her beautiful complexion or her youth. Her youth is the other thing as well. Like women get to a certain age and all of a sudden we're not attractive or useful anymore. And it's like, and then that's not even to take into account women um, who are uh, living with a variety of disabilities. I mean, what does it say about, you know, it's just, it's just so egregious. I can't even begin to. And, and then the trap that you fall into as a feminist is that you start to then beat your, so you care, you inherently care about what you look like because you're told all the time that that's the most important asset that you have. 
So, but then as you unlearn that, you begin to become aware of how much you care about that and how that maybe that's a distraction. And that if you didn't spend an hour a day doing your hair and makeup, you might actually be able to apply that time to uh, whatever it is that you're actually interested in doing with your life. Um, so that in itself creates a gap of time and of labor that um, is invested into a, a vapid, uh, area of life needlessly um, so if that was if it was possible to put that in the bin um, the beauty myth is a really great book on this subject um, if that time was able to be invested somewhere else then that would be that would be great that would be a great tool for women but the problem is is that you could realize that and then you start weaponizing your own discomfort against yourself because you're like there's this brilliant picture that I've saved somewhere on my on my desktop. It's like um, an image of a woman in tights with like a fat roll, and then she's squeezing her own fat roll, and she's saying, um, um, "I want to be pretty, but more than anything, I want to not want to be pretty." <laughs> so it's like, um, you know, hating yourself for hating yourself is yeah. like another layer of um internalized misogyny on top of internalized misogyny it's like yeah. you yeah. know we're stop being so vapid stop caring about this it's not you know it's like um we can't th there's all of these things need to be approached with a level of kindness and compassion for yourself it's not our fault that we've been raised in a world that's told us all this bullshit and it's also okay to want to wear makeup it's okay to want to do all these things. I think ultimately at the end of the day, feminism should be about choice and freedom of choice and um, equality, um, like that choice being made from a place of equality and not fear. So not feeling like um, you have to spend an hour a day doing your makeup, otherwise no one's gonna take you seriously. Um, and at the same time, it shouldn't be about shaming women uh, who want to express themselves by wearing glittery eyeshadow or whatever. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, if you like the color pink, it doesn't mean that you're a shit feminist. It's like, <laughs> it's, all, it's all this stuff. And then there's another layer to internalize misogyny, which I think it very, it would be um, remiss of me not to mention, which me? is that, um, that, um, women hating other women or women separating themselves from other women and being like yeah but I'm not like most women you know there is a there is a and I, I admit I was a bit like that when I was growing up because that was how my internalized misogyny manifested itself because I didn't want to be associated with the kind of girly girls who were liking pink and you know doing all this stuff like I wanted to be in with the the guys or be treated like one of the guys and so I acted like one of the guys and I thought that that was like a way of making myself exempt of their misogyny I mean it, this wasn't a conscious process I was doing it um you know it's like one of those things like oh you're not like other girls um you're smart or you're interesting or whatever and like those kind of comments that come is so deeply misogynist because it's a way of saying that generally speaking, women are a bit shit and that you're the exception to that rule. And if you're buying into that, you're actually, re you're 
it's a traitorous position really it's like i i, I say that with compassion i i don't think it's a deliberately um it, that's a very strong word i retract that not traitorous it's like um you're unconsciously contributing to your own oppression by taking mm -hmm. that standpoint um because it is it's in every woman's interest for all women to be free of this kind of uh, level of, uh, of, you know, patriarchal oppression, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then one other thing as well, which is about the uh, uh, child rearing unpaid labor in the, in the home I think that also this is a this is something that is really deeply ingrained and women feel um, like, oh, I'm so I'm so lucky my husband helps with the childcare or I'm so lucky that my husband like helps me with the ironing or whatever. And it's like, can we please move past this notion that having equal responsibilities in the home, whether that's in raising a child or, or kind of doing the housework is women's work. And that this um, that we should be grateful and bending over backwards for being with a man that acknowledges the um, inequality and disparity to which these uh, this labor is usually distributed. You know, I don't think it's like no one deserves a, no blokes out there who who kind of like raise their own children <laughs> in in a fair way deserve a badge or something. It, no it's like the, all of this stuff needs to go in the bin i don't think that the, the kind of genuine societal uh equilibrium in this level is ever going to be reached until there is a, a kind of more icelandic model of like um child uh, like parental leave for instance you know the gender pay gap exists because women need to take time off to give birth and you know they're not given um jobs and stuff in case they have kids you know all of that stuff needs to go in the bin and one way of addressing it would be to just give men equal time off for a baby they get nine months off as well and if that was the case then you'd suddenly stop having a preference for employing a certain gender over another or promoting a certain gender over another. And also it would value the father's role in the upbringing of their child. I mean, that's one of the nice things that's come from the whole lockdown and pandemic situation is that a lot of um, people have been at home and fathers are actually getting to spend the first year of their child's life at home with their, with their kid, which they wouldn't have got to do because otherwise they would have been back at, back at you know, yeah. doing day jobs. So. The whole structure of society is set up to favor the current system, which is grossly um, inequitable in terms of the approach of gender in the workplace. And I think fundamentally that boils down to um, to child rearing and, and that the excuse of the biology is one itself away. I don't think that's really a viable excuse anymore. Yeah, wow. I mean, you've been so comprehensive. A lot of the things you've said do remind me of what was happening in the Riot Girl movement and how some of that has actually impacted upon the early 2000s band, especially Paramore had a song to do with internalized misogyny. 
Um, I can't thank you enough for being part of this discussion, which has been just, um, I really want to watch it back right now. But I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is let you, writer, director, Numi Spook, talk about any particular project you're involved with at the moment before we wrap up. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, so, oh, man. Just I, one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you work yeah, on I'm many things. Think there isn't really anything that I'm doing. So, oh, um, so I am, um, I am, I am the founder of a uh, a heavy metal uh, exercise dance class, um, which happens uh, a few days a week, and. Um, yeah so watch this space because in the next few months so at the moment it's on a private facebook group which was a mistake um <laughs> i need to like move it over to a public group so that people can people can find it and join um without me needing to be facebook friends with them first um but if anyone is interested in joining the group and likes the sound of doing some heavy metal exercise classes then feel free to message me on facebook and um and i can add you to the group but yeah i will be kind of transposing that over to a public group that's searchable in uh in the next couple of months and um yeah so that's that's something that i've been doing in lockdown and it'd be nice to get so some more metal heads who are interested in having a you know tackling the uh physical and mental health challenges of uh of a pandemic through moshing around like an idiot in your living room <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I, I can personally attest to having a lot of fun in like the three or so sessions that I attended. Um, but I became a gradual wuss. And now I'm just I'm a happy cyber cheerleader to continue to be part <laughs> of that group and to like pitch and say, hey, keep going. But yeah, by all means, this has been fantastic. And I just want to just thank you again for just giving so much heart and soul to every aspect of this conversation. So Aww. thank you. My pleasure. No worries. Thank you, Rantbox TV viewers, for watching. We do an episode every single Friday, posted before 12.30 GMT. If you like what was said here between myself and Numi Spook, there should be links on the screen that will take you to another discussion that we had, which was about a film called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And it was quite a fundamentally expressive experience. Um, so do check that out if you've seen a Netflix film uh, directed by um, Charlie Kaufman. But for now, now, I bid you goodbye, have a lovely day or evening. <laughs>